Welcome to the Tape Ministry of the National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. This workshop from NANC's 2004 annual conference is entitled Preaching and Counseling. The presenter is Jay Adams. we got about two minutes and I'm going to start warming the groove up a little bit. This is Joey in here. How many of you are preachers? That's pretty good. How many elders? Really elders. No, I'll ask for deacons too. Any deacons? There's one. Very good. We're glad to have this many preachers and elders here tonight, today, tonight, whatever. We'll start in a few minutes. We've got about two or three minutes yet, according to that clock back there, which is the one we'll follow. Some people, some people. Well, I think it's about that time now. Boy, you just made it. Okay. You're being pursued. Okay. Where's Dan over there? Lead us in prayer, will you? Stand up and do it good and loud. Father, we are so grateful to be able to come together and hear this brother now to share from your word. We pray, Father, that as we listen to this talk, that your spirit would take your word, apply to our hearts and our minds, so we might be more effective. We can your word teaching. We thank you for your word given to us to communicate to us so that we might communicate to others and so that we be faithful to carry on that path for your glory and your kingdom in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to read you something from Woodrow Wilson. I've heard a great deal of preaching, and I've heard most of it with respect, but I've heard a great deal of it with disappointment, because I felt that it had nothing to do with me. So many preachers whom I hear use the gospel in order to expound some of the difficulties of modern thought. But only now and then does a minister direct the raking fire of examination which consists in taking out of the Scriptures individual concrete examples of men situated as I suppose myself to be situated. Uh, Taking care of the uh, stilted language, what he's saying is, I wish they had preached to me, not just talk to the angels or talk to somebody else. Now maybe one of the reasons why the preachers that he heard were not doing as he had hoped they would because they may not have been counseling. Because it's in counseling you begin to really get into some of the things that will change your preaching forever. The most frequently unsolicited comment that we have from our counseling training program from preachers is this. Words to this effect anyway. This has had a profound effect on my preaching. Counseling has an effect on preaching. And it can't help but have an effect on preaching. We'll see why as we go along tonight. When you counsel, biblically, 
your preaching is bound to change. That's because God united the two in such a way that they really should not be separated. Colossians 1.28, for example, speaks about this. He's speaking of Christ in you, verse 27, the hope of glory, whom we announce, counseling every person and teaching every person as wisely as possible so that we may present every person mature in Christ. There you have the counseling and the teaching together. Now, your translation may say admonishing. It's the word duthateo. It's speaking of uh, counseling people. And then in Acts, for example, the, uh, let's see here, 20th chapter, where we have the two united by God as well. He says, I didn't hold back in declaring anything that was beneficial to you and in teaching you publicly and from house to house. Publicly, preaching, house to house, the individualized ministry of the word and counseling those people. What we need today among preachers is a 2020 vision of their ministry. It's wrong to think you should counsel and forget preaching. It's wrong to think you can preach and forget counseling. These two things should never be separated. Now, there may be an emphasis in one direction or another, but these two things go together. God put them together. And unless they are together, problems occur. The preaching isn't what it ought to be. The counseling isn't what it ought to be. And that's the most important thing I will ever say in this whole lecture tonight. That's the way we talk to people coming late. <laughs> All right. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, we all know the Great Commission, but it's an educational commission teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Teaching to observe. Notice the two sides of that. It's not just getting a lot of facts in people's heads, but facts that will change their daily living. And so this whole business of, of individual lifestyle with the ministry of the Word uh, brought through preaching, teaching, and also brought through counseling is what we're talking about tonight. How the two affect one another. The first thing is, is that your preaching, if you do counseling, is going to become more specific, more concrete. You just can't deal with people's problems abstractly the way a lot of preachers, perhaps most of the preachers, do in the pulpit. You've got to, when you're counseling, deal with those specific problems people have. They're not going to settle for generalities. They're going to say, hey, I've got this problem. What do I do about it? And that's good. That's very good for preachers to have that kind of thing said to them. And if they're not in counseling, they won't have it said. So they can avoid becoming more specific and concrete. But when somebody says that to you in counseling, and he's saying it's not enough to just know the facts, it's not enough just to know the general propositions, as important as they are, I need to know how to get them integrated in my life. I need to know how to, to knead them into the dough of daily living. So help me out. Help me out, counselor. And uh, so a preacher needs to hear that, in my opinion. You see, when um, 
somebody's preaching, he doesn't get that kind of response. He's preaching along, and it's very rare somebody gets up right in the middle of the sermon and says, Whoa, wait a minute, preacher. How do you do that? I'd like to know more about how, how, that, how that goes on, you know, and a person's life really takes place. They don't do that, but they sure do in counseling. They'll cut in and they'll ask questions and they'll want to know how to, and they won't settle for what to alone. They will want the how to as well. And that's good for preachers. So their preaching is going to change. It's inevitably going to change when they begin to counsel faithfully and biblically because people will want to know what God says about how you take the truth and make it a part of daily living. Uh, this, this is something that, that we need to think about more and more. If you're not doing any counseling and you're only preaching, unless you are a rare exception, I believe you're preaching a suffering. I don't think it's going to be the kind of preaching it ought to be. We'll get over to the other side of this thing, how preaching affects counseling in a few minutes. But uh, let's say at least this, right, this way right now, you're going to be affected one way or the other if there's a gap on one side or the other. These two things were designed to go together in ministry. And when people say, uh, as one prominent New England preacher did, who's dead now, and uh, so it doesn't matter who he was, but he got up and he said, I don't need to counsel. All the counseling my people need, I can give them in my preaching. Now, that's a lofty ideal, but you know, when we read in Acts 20 about the Apostle Paul, we read something very different. In verse 31 in this 20th chapter, he says to the elders at Ephesus who were down at Miletus, where he was talking to them, Be alert, remembering that for three years, night and day, I didn't stop counseling, there's a word in this, each one of you with tears. Three years, the whole time he was there, night and day, I didn't stop. It wasn't just done as a campaign every Thursday or something. But this was a large part of his ministry. It was one of the few places that we know as far as the biblical record goes where Paul was a pastor. He was not just uh, some kind of missionary moving in and quickly getting thrown out of town. But he was doing pastoral work there in Ephesus. And that pastoral work consisted of the teaching that he did publicly and the counsel he did from house to house as he dealt with people with tears, every one of them, in such a way that he ministered that word to their specific problems. That makes a tremendous difference. He really can't deal with people's problems abstractly as so many people tried to. That was what Wilson was talking about. That was his complaint. These men preach good stuff, but what's it got to do with me? How do I get it how do I get it into gear? How do I take truth and, and make it a part of life day by day? And that is what we're talking about here. Counseling will help more than anything else to make you a more practical preacher who gets down under people's fingernails and who also meets their needs, who knows what they're going through, and who can talk their language, not just some language that you got out of six commentaries that were written by scholars who never got out from underneath the roof from kindergarten up to grad school. We've got to get to the place where we talk to people where they live. 
Titus 1.1 makes it clear that truth is in order to godliness. That's the purpose of truth. Truth is to lead to changed lives. And that's what we're talking about here. So, that's one thing that we've mentioned. Now, counseling will show you how to use and apply truth. Not just how to think about the individual's problem and analyze that problem and see where uh, the difficulties lie. But now, I've got a passage here that's very helpful, but how am I going to get this person to understand what that passage means in the situation in which he exists, his milieu? How do I bring the passage into his specific milieu? See, that's what we're talking about in counseling. And that's what we need to do also in preaching. We need to understand where people are. And we need to be able to preach to them in those their milieu as well. Now, I know a lot of preachers don't like the Bible the way it's set up. Oh, I know. We, we talk about like and everything. They don't like the way it's set up. They would rather have the Bible in encyclopedic form. So you're going to deal with sin, you go to the S volume. Everything about sin is right there. Or you go to uh, some other thing, and you go to that volume. Everything that's about it is right there. But that's the way God gave it to us. God didn't give us an encyclopedia. He gave us a Bible, which is a living book that's dealing with people's lives day by day. He didn't just simply say, apply the Bible. He gave us truth already applied. When He gave us truth, it was applied to people's circumstances, to their needs, their heartaches, their sorrows, their sin. He brought truth home to people where they were living. Truth came applied. And what we need to do is to study the Scripture to see how the Word of God was applied to people in their lives and in their milieu day by day. And that will make a lot of difference in the way that we begin to preach if we emulate what we see there in the way God the Spirit Use that word to meet people's needs. So the Bible isn't an encyclopedia. It's truth that's given in certain living circumstances where people needed to hear it and could use it tomorrow. Counseling also will alert the preacher to frequently occurring problems. Some preachers wonder what to talk about. They scratch their heads week by week. There are other things about that we could say, and you ought to be planning long before week by week. Uh, I might say something later about that. I don't know if we have time. But what they do is they wonder, what, what should I preach about? Well, if you're doing counseling regularly, you're going to see some of the potholes that your people are falling into. You're going to see here's somebody who fell into it, and here's another one who fell into it. And after six months, you find three people have gotten hung up in that problem. Uh, you're going to miss the boat if you don't get up in the pulpit and talk about that. Counseling is going to alert you to problems that your people are having. And if you don't know what they're having, you're just going to preach over their heads. Any old thing that, that is your hobby that you're going to ride. That's the great problem for preachers who ride their hobbies. I remember one time seeing in a newspaper over a long period of time the announcements. This was way back when they announced sermons in, in the, on the church directory page in, in Baltimore. And this preacher, who's also dead, uh, was preaching in the morning on Daniel, in the evening on Revelation, and in prayer meeting he was having talks on Ezekiel. Now there was something wrong with his preaching. 
What was wrong was it was all dessert and no meat and potatoes. He really enjoyed prophecy. But his people needed a lot more than just prophecy. And that was the problem. He wasn't, wasn't really interacting with his people the way you do and you must do when you're in counseling. When people come up to you and they say, hey, my marriage is breaking up. And by the way, that preacher who said, I don't need to counsel anywhere, he had a whole church full of people with problems that had never been solved. Marriages all falling apart and everything else. And you've heard this kind of thing. The primacy of preaching. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Bible doesn't teach that. Preaching is extremely important. And I've taught more preaching over the years in Westminster Seminary, and I've actually taught counseling. And I believe in preaching. I believe all the important that preaching is extremely important. But the Bible doesn't say the primacy of preaching. That's what some orators like to say. Preachers who are orators and who make more of that than any other way and don't want to do counseling for the most part. Preaching is prime. No. The ministry of the Word is what's prime. You look at Acts 6. And when the apostles said, we shouldn't be serving tables. Not that they thought it was beneath them. That wasn't the point. They had been called to a ministry. And it was interfering with that ministry. And so they appointed the deacons to take care of that sort of thing. And they went back to, what was it? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word is much bigger than simply preaching. As we saw Paul doing this kind of ministry every day, day and night, over the three-year period, with tears, so that every one of those people would have heard what God had to say to them personally and individually. I think he did more counseling than most of us do when you read that picture. He just didn't do it in certain seasons of the year. He did it continually. He did not cease, he says, counseling. So, watch out for riding your own hobbies. And if you're doing counseling, you're not as likely to do that. And you're not likely to be searching for subjects. You're kind of probably be saying, oh, so many things are going wrong with all these people. When am I going to get time to deal with them all? You know? You're going, to be, you're going to be motivated to preach in a new way. You're going to be motivated to get up into that pulpit and, and talk to people about their lives. See, the problem is we talk about the Bible. That's what we should do in preaching. shouldn't talk about the Bible. I want to talk about people and God in relationship to them from the Bible. We're preaching to people. We're not just giving a lecture on the Bible. We're not giving a history lesson on the Amalekites. We're concerned about what that passage that has to do with the Amalekites has to do with Joe Smo when he goes to work tomorrow. Because that's when the passage begins to mean something to him. So, what are some of the things that are going to happen when you start preaching, counseling? How is that going to affect your preaching? Well, I'm not going to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, but we could. After we get through the... the the Beatitudes and the, the light and the salt. Every other thing that he teaches, he gives not only the what to, but the how to. Look at that sermon carefully sometime. When you pray, now he gives the how not to first. Do not be like the hypocrites who think they can be heard for their much speaking. But when you pray, and here comes the how to. 
pray after this manner. The Lord's Prayer is how to. He put people on the right track. He got them started. He got the thing in gear for them. He doesn't lead, lead them to say, don't pray like the hypocrites, pray the right way. He, he showed them what you do when you pray the right way. He gave them some how to. When you give alms, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, but, and so on. And then when you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites who want to be seen out on the streets, you know, and caught at the hour of prayer and pray long prayers and long robes where everybody looks at them and says, oh, what a holy guy he is. But instead, he said, go into your closet and pray, and your Father who sees you in private will bless you openly. So, you know, this is the kind of thing, how to, how to, how to. And he even ended that message by saying, I want to see that these things are put into practice. When he closed that message, it was with an illustration. What was the illustration? Sand and rock. Sand and rock, absolutely. And you know we've distorted that. We've taught our children to sing a little song. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house on the sand. The foolish man built his house on the sand. And the rains came humbling down. As, as the prayers go up, the blessings come down. The prayers go up. It's not about prayer. Prayer is true, that what that song says is true, but we've taught our children from the earliest day to not exegete properly. <laughs> we have. What's that, what is that story about? Well, the story is the man who built his house on the sand and it fell apart when the winds and the rains and everything else came along and swept it away. <sighs> he wasn't a Floridian. Uh, this man, this man, did not do the things that I commanded you, he says. But this man who built on the rock did the things that he was commanded to do. Teaching is for doing. We are to learn God's will in order that we put it into practice in life. So that we live it. So as we said, you, you need the truth into the dough of life. And you begin to live that truth. Truth becomes a reality. Not just an abstract something or other that we can talk about in highfalutin terms. Counseling also will help you to anticipate objections. <clears throat> You're going to run into uh, all kinds of objections that people have, and sometimes when you preach, what you want to do is to anticipate the kinds of objections they might have to what you're saying. Now, I know some of you will say to me, that's the way Paul talked, remember? Romans 9 Verse 19, you will say to me that why does he yet find fault? Who can resist his will? Paul is saying, you will say to me, he's anticipating the kind of response he's going to get. And if you're in counseling enough, you know what kind of response you're going to get. If you just do preaching, you don't get any responses. But in counseling, people say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. How can he? And they go on very questions like this. Why do you think Paul was able to do that? Because he was talking to people constantly about their lives and he knew what those questions were that they were raising. And he could anticipate and the people didn't have a chance then to use these things as excuses. So when we're preaching, if we preach out of a con counseling context where we've been meeting people and learning about their objections, their problems and so on, we're going to say to them, I know, some of you are thinking so and so. But let me tell you, here's what God says. And that will never get you there anywhere. In Luke 17, uh, the uh, problem of forgiving, even though it's difficult to do so, is brought up. And uh, there are three things that came out of that picture. When I get more uh, 
faith, I will, I will forgive. No, that won't go. Jesus said, look, if you have faith like a, a mustard seed, you can do wonders with it. Don't, this tree, say to this tree, get over here from here to here and it'll do you. You can do wonders with a little bit of faith. You don't need more faith. It's whether you have faith or not. This is a matter of obedience. And then he talks about uh, other things, feelings and so on. But when he gets to this feeling things, he tells a story. He anticipates that the fact they're going to raise it. He says, here's a, here's a slave. He's out there slaving away under a hot Palestinian sun all day long, and he comes home as the sun sinks into the Mediterranean. A little different from the way he put it, but that's the picture. Once you get the picture. And uh, he, uh, he says, uh, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm so tired. I'm so sweaty. Uh, and what does his master do, Jesus says? So you look at him and say, oh, I see you're, you need, some, need to rest. You need to get a shower, and you need to go get, a, get some food in your stomach. No! He didn't say it at all. He says, you get in there and get a shower and clean yourself up and then go in the kitchen and make my meal when I'm finished eating that you can eat. Well, you can picture this guy. I mean, he's in there where his stomach's like... It's an eruption. He's like one of Pavlov's dogs, you know, draining from the mouth. And he's saying, if I could only get... Dig into this stuff myself. But there's a guard at the door. He didn't dare do it. So if I, if I can only dig into this myself. And what is he doing? He's preparing the meal. And he's putting golden lumps of butter into that, those mashed potatoes and stirring around. He's got peas over here boiling on the pot. And he's got roast beef, the aroma of which is filling the room. Uh, oh, man. By the time he takes that stuff out to his master, it doesn't even look like food anymore. It looks like Fields of green peas, mountains and of potatoes and lakes of gravy and forests of roast beef. And here's this master, he's chewing away on the stove while he's standing there with a towel hanging over his arm. And here's the master toying with the last pea on his fork. But then it isn't the end of it. He has to go back and get dessert. And he brings in dessert. It doesn't, even, it doesn't look like dessert. He's got eyes as big as, big as saucers. And he comes in and, and it, it, looks like, it looks like Niagara's of whipped cream cascading over cliffs of apricots. Now you get the picture. Everything in this guy says, I want to eat it myself. His feelings. And Jesus anticipating people say, well, I don't feel like it. I can't do it. And man, isn't that the thing we hear all the time in counseling? If you counsel, you know it is. And uh, people will say to you then, well, you know, Jesus doesn't... Here's one of these objections that you hear in counseling. Uh, Jesus doesn't want us to be a hypocrite, so if I don't feel like doing it, then I shouldn't do it. (laughs) And you say to him, because you have worked it through in counseling, you've heard that objection, you've thought it through, you've gone back to the next time you hear it, and you've got the answer this time, and you're going to mention it in preaching if anybody raises the issue, so that they won't... Be able to use that excuse. You're going to say to them, "Look, I, I don't know uh, anything about your feelings, but it really doesn't matter." Jesus said to do it. This was a command, and the point of this whole thing is that you are to do what He tells you to do, whether you feel like it or not. And that does not make you a hypocrite. Every morning, I feel like lying in the bed when the alarm goes off. That doesn't make me a hypocrite if I get up anyway. It just makes me responsible. That's a false view of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy would be to say, hey, I love to get up in the morning. When I don't, I hate getting up in the morning. (laughs) So it's not not, uh, doing something that's against your feelings that makes you a hypocrite. Well, you've got all this in your, you know, you've you've thought this thing through because you've had this problem in counseling. And the next time, 
You're going to have it in counseling to give to somebody and you're going to be able to anticipate it in a message. I know some of you may say to me, <laughs> I don't feel like doing this thing. You know, and off you go. So, it will make a difference to know something about the how-to in preaching. You know one of the serious problems we have is the dead wood in the churches? You know what the dead wood is? We call them dead wood. People kind of lie down the, the pew uh, figuratively speaking, and, and do nothing. They just take up some room, and uh, that's about it. Now, most people think, well, you know, what can you do with them? A lot of those people are, are not really dead. They're just given up. They've given up. They heard something from the pulpit that said, do this! Everybody do this! Because this is what God wants you to do! And everybody said, Amen! And then they went out to try to do it. And nobody told them how to do it, how to even get started on doing it, or what it means to do it. They were just had this preaching at them, do it! So they went out and did it. They didn't know how to do it, so they fell flat on their faces. Well, that hurts. Well, they, um, they didn't do that for a while again, but then they read a magazine, a Christian magazine, that said, do it! In one way or another, said the same thing. And so they went out and they tried again. This time we're going to put a little more energy into it. They fall harder on their face because they don't know how to do it. And that goes on long enough that they say, well, maybe Paul could do it, but I'm not Paul. And they go to sleep on the pew. Now what wakes those people up like nothing else will is in counseling to get those people and say, now look, here's how you do it. Here's how God wants you to do it. Just like Jesus did in His sermon. And to preach that way to keep people from going to sleep on the pews. Well, it helps ferret out all these excuses that we've been talking about. And that's a very important thing for you to do in preaching. Okay, it will also disclose the importance of structure needed for change. People don't just bang, make the change the minute you tell them to do it in preaching. A lot of preachers think that that's all they have to do. Tell somebody to do it and then wonder why they don't do it. Well, sometimes it takes nurture. It takes counsel. It takes struggle. Struggling with the person to help him to see, look, this is what you have to do, and, and I know you're facing some problems in doing it. I know you don't want to go and talk to that person and seek his forgiveness, but here's why you have to do it, because Jesus said to. And look, let's, let's figure out how the best to do it, and I'll be praying for you, and I'll be working with you, and if things go wrong, come on back, we'll talk about what to do next, and so on. You need to nurture people, help them along the way. Counseling is more than just saying, go do it. That's pretty important. Structure. You're giving some structure to what you're saying. You say, look, here's the things that have to be done and here's how we go about doing it. And then you ride herd on those people until they get it done. It's just like, it's just like uh, learning piano. Now, I don't know anything about it except I have a daughter-in-law who teaches piano and wrote the, the Nike uh, hymn. And uh, so I know a little bit about it from afar. But I know one thing. You're not supposed to keep your fingers flat. You're supposed to curve them. Why, I can't imagine. It just seems so awkward to me. But anyway, that's what you're supposed to do. Curve your fingers when you hit it. These me. Well, anyway. And so, here's somebody who's learning piano. Let's get those fingers curved. person starts flattening out. Whoa! 
Get those fingers up. Okay, gets them up again. Does a little more. Whoa! Up again. And she rides herd on somebody until they get it. When they get it, then she can back off. Work on something else. That's what we need to do with people. Help them through the problem of change in their lives. And so that means discipline for change. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Discipline yourselves for godliness. You have the word for there is pros means that ought to be what your goal is. And the way to get there is discipline. Discipline will lead you toward godliness. Well, you want godliness? It requires discipline. Discipline means regularity. It means consistency. It means not just doing it today, but not tomorrow. It means sticking with it. Even when things are tough and difficult and it's long and it may take a while, you're going to stay in there, hang in there until the thing happens. Because things don't change overnight. Uh, when you discipline yourself for godliness, the same word is used there as the words used for an athlete who's disciplining himself for the Olympics, say. Does he knock on the Olympics someday and say, hey, I'd like to get in? No, he's been training for a long while until it's all part of him. And that's what needs to happen. And you need to ride herd on people like that until they begin to do the things that the Bible teaches them to do and they're able to do them uh, well and to do it smoothly and to do it unconsciously. So, you need to give people suggestions, what to do, how to begin, where to find help, all those kinds of things. And not just getting up and saying, do it! Now, some people will, but there will be very few because most people are not disciplined. When you do counseling, you'll discover that just about 85% of the people you deal with are undisciplined. And it's a complicating problem to the other problems. And so if you can't, can't get them to disciplined in doing the things they ought to be doing, the change isn't going to take place. Discipline is critical. And so we have to build structure, disciplined structure that will enable people uh, in our preaching to do it. Now, here's what you're going to do first. And here's what you'll do next. And if you have problems, I want to see you right on the spot and we'll talk, talk it through and we'll work with it. You know, things like this. A hundred different ways of saying it. But discipline is important. The trouble with discipline is, is it's a two-edged sword. It cuts the person who disciplines uh, as well as the person who is disciplined. He has to be consistent. He has to be regular. He has to continue to do the same thing. So many of the preachers are undisciplined, and no wonder their congregations are. Well, all kinds of complicating problems, not just like discipline, but others will arise when you're, you're involved in counseling. Doubt, for instance, will come up as a complicating problem. James, in the first chapter, tells us all about doubt and how God won't even hear the, hear the prayer of a double-minded man. Double-souled, it says in the original. This guy has, is, is debating. He doesn't know. He never gets it down. down. He's like a wave of the sea. You've got the wave, big crest here, and you say, oh, that looks pretty, and it's gone. Something else takes its place. It's not stable. And so what we need then is to understand that there are complicating problems. It's not just the one he needs to resolve, but what gets in the way of getting it resolved. And we need to think about that. We'll think about those things in counseling if we're doing good counseling, and we'll anticipate those in preaching as well. When a person does the wrong thing about the problem, we will also know that here is one of the ways in which people goof up. They, they think this is what they're doing, and it's not enough, or it's not the right thing. When we have uh, our PDI, personal data inventory, on the back page, it says, what is your problem? What have you done about it? What do you want us to do about it? And so on. Well, 
that what have you done about it question is very interesting. What kind of answer you get? What do you think is the most common answer you get? Prayed. Prayed. Absolutely. That's it. And I always say to people when I read that, I say, that's great. But what did you pray that God would enable you to give you the wisdom and the strength to do? They thought that prayer was punting. The ball's in God's hands now. Let Him run with it. And that isn't what it is. Prayer is not punting. And so we know about that from counseling, and we work with that, and we bring that into our preaching as well. It changes our preaching. And, of course, counseling provides a valuable source of contemporary examples when properly used. Now, you use them by permission, and you say it's by permission if it's somebody that everybody knows, or if the example is simply flattened out, you say, now, there's nobody you know, and it's just a, a, a conglomeration of a number of people I've talked about, so don't start looking around thinking who's going to be, who this is going to be, but I want to tell you about this situation. Here's the kind of thing that happens. And, you know, examples are important. Living examples are what's important, not just examples that, uh, you know, everybody's used in the, in the example book for years and years and years and years, those 50,000 uh, illustration type books. Maybe you get six or eight out of that. Uh, so here is the matter of examples. And it also does other things when you use an example in counseling. That is an example of something that took place in counseling. Use that in your preaching. First of all, it makes people know that you're available for counseling. You don't have to hold up a sign and say, I'm available. Now, you might put something in the bulletin now and then about it. But if you, if you use examples of, of in counseling a person, this is the kind of thing we've run into and so on and so forth, and here's how it has to be resolved. And if you're having that kind of problem, you know, off you go. People think, whoo, something's going on here. They're working with people. Yeah, maybe I need to go and get some help. And also, when you get, get some examples, uh, people also know that, that this truth that you're teaching is not just something abstract. Here's a case in which it actually was put into action, and here was the result. You see? Really important to use examples that way. And, of course, this all in, brings an increased confidence in God's Word. It enhances the expectation of the listener to whom you're preaching by demonstrating through cases that God's Word actually transforms people. It shows how biblical principles can really be put into practice in life and change people's lives. And it makes your preaching more compassionate. And you preach abstractly, and that's pretty cold. There are very few commentaries that have any warmth in them. Most of them are pretty dull, abstract, cold. Very few have any warmth in them. But when you preach, and you preach about people's struggles, the difficulties that they're having, the kind of thing you've seen them struggle with in counseling, you bring some of that, not necessarily even mentioning the person at this case, in this case, but, you know, I know you may have struggle, you may have a deep struggle with this thing if you go out and try to do this, but, you know, God's Word is going to see you through, and here's how it'll happen. And I want you to anticipate ahead of time. It's going to be not easy, it's going to be easy because all your friends are going to laugh at you or whatever it is, you know, and off you go. You're preaching out of compassion for this person, how he's got a difficult thing to do. 
but you also show him that it can be done and here are some ways that he might begin to do it. Now, the other way is true too. When you preach properly, your counseling will change. <laughs> so the two do fit together. And these two things do feed one another. They, they, they feed on one another and they also feed one another. It would be wrong to mention, not to mention the other side of the equation since God put the two together, right? Now, for example, there's a chicken and egg effect. Each affects the other. Better preaching leads to better counseling. Now, how? Well, we can talk about a lot of things, but there's so much thin soup in the field of counseling that it almost makes you sick. If you take any of it and start to, to drink any of it, you do get sick. Pick up all the Christian counseling books that you can find on your shelves and look at the way Scripture is used or misused. Look at the way that Scripture is not even involved in what's going on. Look in the index and see if you ever find a word like repentance or forgiveness. I mean, the stuff that people are given is pablum. That's what they're given, even by Christians who counsel. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is because many of those people have degrees in psychology, PhDs in psychology, but they have Sunday school degrees in Bible. The only Bible they really know they get in Sunday school, and sometimes that isn't taught very well. Or maybe they are part of the groups that have sit around with little books with lots of white space and not much else to them. You know, everybody shares his ignorance so that they can fill in those blanks. Nobody does any exegesis. Nobody knows how to exegete. Any counselor who doesn't learn how to exegete is a poor counselor. He will be a worse counselor if he doesn't somehow rectify that situation. You've got to learn how to dig into God's Word in such a way that you get the truth out of it rather than using verses for the purposes that you see that they may be useful for. Excuse me, didn't mean to get too excited about that. <laughs> what? Hey, that's dangerous. You're talking to a Presbyterian. We don't we don't get too many of those responses. I mean, that's like saying sick him to a dog to a Presbyterian. <laughs> okay. So it really is critical that a counselor not just read books on counseling. That's what so many of them do. That's because they're only counseling. That's because they're not preaching. And as I said before, you ought to be doing both. When you're preaching as well as counseling, or if you don't have an opportunity to preach, you do have an opportunity to teach somewhere. All right, when you're doing that, that keeps you green. Instead of using the same old 15 verses that you use for everybody under every circumstance. One guy told me you only needed 12. Instead of that, you're beginning to learn, you're beginning to learn more and more of God's Word. Because... Every week, you're into the Word and using commentaries and trying to find out what the real meaning of this passage is. Instead of saying, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So that must be the philosophy we should keep in mind. <laughs> what a misuse of that verse. That verse is one of the few in that section that has a context. And the context is, when you go to eat somewhere in a guy's house, and he says to you, have a second helping of uh, these pork chops. You're supposed to laugh at that because this is a Jew. <laughs> Have a second, second helping of these pork chops. He says, be careful. Don't take him for what he says because what he's really thinking is down his heart. I want to save that pork chop for lunch tomorrow. I hope this greedy pig doesn't eat it himself. 
So that's all the verse is talking about. A very simple, practical situation in life. And people make a philosophical thing out of it just because it sounds like that. But they don't exegete. They don't even read the verse before or the verse after in a simple little context of two or three verses, let alone anything more complex than that. So we've got to get to do biblical exegesis, understanding what the passage means, distinguishing between things that differ, learning how to dig into God's Word and not just take the stuff that seems to be lying around on the surface, but to get down into the depths of that Word and mine it, mine that rich vein of truth that's down there. And that doesn't happen usually for counselors who counsel alone, only counsel. But if they have to regularly teach or regularly preach, then they've got to start digging for more information if they're genuine and they're faithful in wanting to use God's Word. So, keeps you green when you're doing preaching. And that will help your counseling. You'll be able to use verses that you never thought of using before because now you understand them and they sharply uh, uh, meet the problem the person had, whereas you were using something that was only dully meeting the problem because it really wasn't designed for that purpose. Exegesis is critical. Now, you see, the problem here is, is that another problem is that the counselor needs to know more than the preacher. The preacher knows where he's going in a given sermon, or he ought to. That's not always true. <laughs> he knows what passages he's going to deal with, what he, where he needs to go, and so forth and so on. But it's very circumscribed. You know, it's all boxed in. Nobody's going to raise any questions, as we said, and try to lead him away from some, into some other area. So he's safe. He knows what he's going to be talking about. But you go into counseling. And you're talking about something. You think you know what you're going to tell the people about. And uh, maybe you've planned it all before you come to the counseling session. And suddenly, as you're digging in, you find out, ooh, there's something entirely different going on here. And you have to take all the plans you had and shove them over, off the desk and dig into this new thing. You need to know the whole gamut of God's truth in order to do counseling. It's harder than preaching. And that's going to take time. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It's going to take digging in the Scriptures. It's going to take buying the best commentaries and using them. The best reference books and using them. These are the kind of things that are absolutely essential to do good counseling. You need to be a theologian and an exegete. That's the kind of training that ought to be done for counseling, not psychology. Not if you want to use God's Word to bless and change people's lives. Well, there's a lot of misinterpretation. Why do all these things happen, that people twist the Word of God? Let's look at Second uh, Peter. The last, um, the last chapter in verse 16. Talking about Paul, as he does in all his letters, when in them he speaks about these events. Some things in them are hard to understand. Not everything's easy in the Bible. It takes work. Which, now get this, untaught and unstable persons twist as they do the other scriptures. Untaught and unstable preachers. What kind of people are we? Is the question we need to ask ourselves. How about you? How about me? 
If we don't know how to exegete, we better go take a course on learning how to do it or get at least 16 books and learn on your own. We're untaught. We're going to twist God's Word. And if our own lives are unstable, if we're the kind of people who are like those waves, doubt and question and wonder, and is this philosophy correct? Is this counseling system proper? Is that Do a lot of fad surfing from one counseling method to another rather than centering everything in the Word of God, you're going to be unstable. I know how many people I've talked to who are in counseling uh, and are Christians, but their counseling is the latest thing that's come down the pike. And you know, a lot of them are getting tired. They're getting tired of retooling every six months or every year. They're junking what they thought they knew and thought was right, and now they've got to do something else. And something else is now new. And, uh, you know, self-esteem was a big thing. And California put 700 and... Uh, and uh, I think it was 50 some, uh, seven, seven thousand, uh, seven, what, seven five oh oh oh, yeah, uh, into this thing for a number of years, and they finally quit and said didn't do a thing. The church is just getting wise to to uh, uh, self-esteem stuff. The world's rejected it already. The church always lags behind, you see. And we're bringing all that junk into the church. We don't need that. That that was quite a system out there that they had. I'll tell you what it was like. I was out there and I was driving along the 45-mile zone. and I I mean, a 35-mile zone, and I did 45, and I got stopped. And the officer came over to me and he said to me, he said to me, he said, now we don't think you're a bad person. (laughs) Oh! What did I care what he thought about me? What I cared about was I have to pay that fine. I mean, but that's the kind of slush that went on in that program. You know, just awful. That, that literally happened. So it's not a matter of reading counseling books. It's a matter of reading the Bible intelligently and in such a way that you really understand what it says. Now, it's not wrong to read counseling books. There are a few good ones out there. Wouldn't hurt you to read them. If they're based on exegesis and theology that's solid. That's key. Good preaching then elicits counseling. And if you have that problem, you may need counseling. It raises matters about which people seek help because it rattles the windows in their home. So the lack of one will cause the other to suffer. When God has joined two things together, let no man put them asunder. We have about 11 minutes or so for questions. Good. Just uh, if I I could, uh, Ken Myers of uh, Mars Hill Tapes, Mars Hill Productions, he went into his uh, nine-year-old child's Classroom. Couldn't let us. Everybody here over there. And uh, the teacher had a project in the classroom. There was a huge, a huge bulletin board, and the top of it said, "I am proud." I am proud. Yeah. Uh, you can just imagine what the teacher had been telling you. Yeah, so, that's right. And every child had an opportunity to write something on the board. I am proud because I'm me. I am proud because I'm good. Because I'm a human being. Yeah. 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 One child had, had listened to the teacher, and he had written in the corner, self of steam. 
Instead of self-esteem, he wrote self-of-esteem. That's wonderful. Okay, that, that really... <laughs> Pretty good stuff, yeah. I mean, well, I don't even want to get in the whole self-esteem thing. I have about a two-hour lecture on that. Wrote a book on it. Okay, yeah. You said if there was time, you'd talk about scheduling and preaching. Well, yes, in the... In preaching and purpose, I've laid out a whole program for scheduling your preaching. I'll just briefly mention it here. Uh, if you take the, the year as a circle, and then another circle inside of it, the outer circle being your morning messages, the inner circle being your evening messages. I'm assuming you preach both times. And you cut your circle, both circles, into four sections. And... Uh, that roughly corresponds to winter period up top, let's say, and uh, the spring period and the summer period at the bottom and the fall over here. So you got four basic periods of time. Ah, you know, any old way you want to do it, but this is one simple way to do it. Now you begin to plan six months ahead of time what you're going to do six months later on. And uh, there it is. He's putting it on the board. What do you know? Isn't that sensational? Okay, get the center circle. Yeah, very good. Now, what you want to do is six months before you preach it, you want to do all the exegetical work. Throw it onto an envelope or something. So that on the Monday before you preach this message, you've done all the exegesis. You just dump this envelope out and you've got all kinds of stuff. You've even got illustrations in there because... You knew what you were going to preach about six months before, and those just came to you. You didn't have to go digging for them the last minute. They came to you because you knew you were going to preach about that subject, and you heard something on the radio, and she dashed a little something out and put it in there. You saw something on television, something in the newspaper, tore it out, dumped it in the envelope, so that when six months or four months or however it was when you found those things, and it came along to that last week before you preached, you got all this stuff already here, too much to use. Plus the exegesis. Now you, you shape up the message and put the, the kind of things in it that you need but uh, to make a, the structure of the message and so on. This is the kind of thing we ought to be doing because then you avoid writing hobbies, for example. Uh, if you took the whole summer period underneath here, that bottom section of the, the quarter of the, the year, a little strangely laid out there, uh, if you took that uh, bottom section of the year you realize people were largely away often. They go here, they go there. So you can't really have as much of a continuity in preaching through a book, for instance, during that period as you would during the other three periods. So maybe you want to, during that period, have a lot of more individual messages or two or three from a particular passage and two or three from another passage where, where people won't miss too much, you see, if they have to be away for a week or two. So you, you're thinking then about the whole year, see? And uh, you're thinking about other things in terms of, of where, what you're going to do, where and when. But also, if you do a whole six-month period, you're going to be seeing whether you're, you're, what you're preaching is a balanced diet. Because you're going to look at this, look at this, and you say, oh, man, I've been riding my hobby, too. Oh, that's bad. I better get some more meat and potatoes in here. I'm giving it too much, too much pumpkin pie. And so... Um, off it goes. That's some of the stuff you'll be doing. Now, it's in much more detail in, um, in there if you want to ever pursue that any further in, uh, in a book called Preaching with Purpose. Yeah? How do you avoid 
assuming most of your counselees are in your church, how do you avoid offending the, you know, say you've been counseling somebody on finances, as you were saying, that counseling feeds into your preaching, how do you avoid the on the most inevitable backlash of them thinking you're preaching about the situation you're just counseling about? Well, number one, uh, you don't use those situations without permission, as I said. And uh, you ask that permission from the individual. And secondly, when you preach about something, you flatten it out. Uh, you know, you, you you don't make it exactly the way it was. You flatten, you put into it and take out the things that there aren't, don't make any difference in the real uh, dynamic of what you're saying. Uh, you know, if it were six months ago, somebody might have done something rather than this guy you were just dealing with last week, you might say, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that would happen. I mean, you're not lying about what you're doing. You're saying this is the kind of thing that would happen at that point in that place and that time. But it's always, it's just kind of like a, a, a certain man went down from Jerusalem, Jericho to Jerusalem. That's flattened out into a very specific individual and so on, you see. So you flatten it out. But a lot of times people will be grateful that you were helpful. And they, they themselves go out and tell people. And so you say to them, hey, uh, could I talk about that? Would you mind if I mention that? Or you may say to them at certain points, I'm going to mention something that's in the scripture that we talked about here. There's a message coming up about six weeks from now. And I want you to know that this message is prepared not for you, and it has nothing to do with you particularly, except as the, you know, the, the principles applied. But we're not talking about your case. We're just talking about this situation, which everybody needs to know just the way you did. So you can make that clear to them. Lots of ways to go about it. And when people have been counseled, sometimes they think, well, you know, I told this preacher all these personal things. Maybe I better leave the church. After. That's awful. When a, when a shepherd goes out and heals cares for the sheep, brings them in out of the brush and the briars and then they're wounded and they're they're bleeding and it just brings the shepherd and the and the sheep a lot closer together. So if this is done properly, it really unites people. It doesn't doesn't drive them away. Except for some guy who doesn't you know, doesn't care about much anyway. Probably wouldn't gonna change. We got time for just a couple more, yeah. What would you um, recommend as the best resource for uh, sort of a how to uh, not, not dealing with the theory or theology behind it, but a resource for somebody to use. Go to this issue, and here's some how-tos in terms of counseling. So. I've got a lot of that in the, the manual, Christian Counselor's Manual. And that's one thing. And then uh, Wayne Mack has some books on uh, homework assignments that deal with how-to, a couple of those. So those things might be useful. But giving homework assignments, which I haven't mentioned at this point, is critical in dealing with people in counseling. You want to write her and make sure when they come back the next week they've done their assignment. If they haven't, find out why they didn't, what needs to be done about that, and then get them going again. Yeah. Louder. Do you think that if, you think that if there, there were more discipleship classes going on in order to prepare the new babes in Christ and to help them to mature, that counseling would not be as needed as it seems to be today because confidence seems to be the main thing but discipleship is what seems to be needed in the church so that each member is able to get a handle on the word of God so these things are not these things are not separate uh, counseling is a piece of it's a piece of discipleship which is the bigger thing uh, that takes place the counseling takes place when there's been a log jam in a normal process of sanctification and what its purpose is is to break the log jam up so the process can get moving again, and discipleship will do the job then. 
This is something that gets in the way of discipleship. So counseling is there to try to remove that thing, get the person clicking again. No, we don't want to make too much counseling. That's one of the problems. People come to these meetings all the time. So it's important, but it's really uh, of most importance because we've got so many people on the battlefield who are lying there wounded and dead and, and all kinds of conditions, and we've got to do something about that situation because they can't, they can't get up and fight for us, for the Lord, because they're in such awful shape. So we need to get them in shape so they can do a job for the Lord. But that's the purpose, to, to do the job, not to, not to be, do, be counselors and do counseling. Counseling, is, uh, in a sense, is, is a defeatist thing because it, it shows that the people have gone the wrong way rather than doing the right thing. I have time for just one more question. Well, it's, it's different because it, it took some of the, Broger took some of the stuff that we had set up and he turned around toward us rather than toward the people you're going to do counseling for. I don't think that's useful if you're going to do counseling. Besides, they want you to do too much paperwork, and they never get around to letting you counsel. Uh, so that's the problem with that. Otherwise, it, it has good things in it and so on, and you could draw from That's it. You can try to use hand up. Pardon me? You can try to use hand up. Oh, okay, let's get it quickly because the hour is up. I have a situation I'm not sure how to solve. Some people complain that the preaching is not meeting the needs of the people, while other people in the congregation are saying that they are having their needs met. What do we do in that situation? Well, lots of possible situations there. Um, Some people just grouse no matter what. Uh, no matter how good the preaching is, or how many, but then there are different needs. One's a family problem, the other one's a different kind of problem. It's a school problem or something, and uh, the, the range of problems and needs and so on are, are is vast. Yeah, I like that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know you gotta gotta dig in and find out specifically what's going on in that situation before you'll know how to deal with it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.